Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine, exploring that eternally confounding question, what draws people to get obsessed with this crazy game? My name's Rod Murray and I'm your host for these discussions, tapping into what drives those people for whom the game has become more than just a recreation and instead has infused itself into everyday life. As you'd expect, many of those who fit that criteria are professionals whose daily routine involves practicing and playing the game. For some, golf's little more than a means to earn money. But for others, like today's guest, it is much, much more. Greg Chalmers is the very embodiment and definition of humble. Two times a winner of both the Australian Open and Australian PGA, the left-hander, who also won the Australian Amateur in 1993, has earned the right to a bit of cockiness, if he wants. But he doesn't want, and as you'll hear, it may be part of the reason he's won just once on the PGA Tour. Chalmers was, not surprisingly, a generous, thoughtful and expansive guest whose profile doesn't really match his contribution and achievements in the game. As always, I hope you come away from this discussion. <clears throat> As always, I hope you come away from this discussion knowing a bit more about Greg Chalmers than you did when you started. I know I did. The jumping off point, as you probably know, Greg, is the thing about golf. So I've been posing the question this way for the last couple of episodes, and it's worked quite nicely. Finish this sentence for me. The thing about golf is. Oh. (laughs) The thing about golf is. Damn, it's hard. Not just the question. Yeah. The game. Um, The thing about golf is it. Always find your weakness. And I don't mean that in a sense of, hey, you might be bad at chipping and putting or whatever. You'll find that. But he finds your emotional weakness. It finds if you're too arrogant, you'll find that. If you're not confident enough, it'll find that. If you uh, don't believe in yourself enough, it'll find that. If you have fear in your life, it'll find it. Um, Golf is a great, such a great game. If you are willing to look at yourself for you to see who you really are, um, that's that's how I see it. I found it extremely challenging throughout my career because some of the traits that I have as a human being aren't the greatest traits to be successful in golf, even though they might make me a nice father or a husband, but they aren't the greatest when you step on the first tee. Uh, and vice versa, some of the traits – that I need to be successful as a golfer aren't the greatest traits as a human being sometimes. You've got to be selfish, arrogant, um, cocky sometimes. Mm-hmm. And switching in between those two is challenging for some people and, and at certain points in my life where I found it more difficult to switch into my professional role than I have into my um, personal, you know, relationships and role off the golf course. Mm-hmm. I found that more natural. So, it, yeah. The thing about golf is it'll it'll find your weakness. It's a journey, Greg, not a destination. I think is how yes. probably yes, yeah. so, so true. That's the deepest answer I've had since Bryden McPherson. And if you know Bryden, you'll know how deep yes. he can go, uh, which is fantastic. But there's a bit of a theme developing in their own way. All of the pros I've spoken to, I think, have said the same things that you have, which seems to make golf. It, it seems as though whether it's just pros, people treat golf as more than just a game. It's more than just a recreation or more than just a job. Those things you touched on are 
it's much more than just a career and work, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I, I think for a lot of people, any sport that you are truly passionate about, it's always more than just the game mm-hmm. within that sport. You know, if you talk to people who are passionate about other sports, they'll be like, no, it's more than just basketball or soccer or football, whatever, pick a sport. Um, I think there's so much about golf that is, A, it's, um, I mean, I could go on for quite a while here, but it, there's so much about it that is so great uh, in turn, not just what I, I touched on there with the, the challenge of how challenging it is and what it can show you if you're willing to see, what it can show you the type of person you are. Um, it's also just the fact that, you know, how, ex- how the people you meet, how accessible you are, to playing venues that are world class, that you're, I'm never going to walk out on the MCG and roll my arm over, you know, so I'm never going to bat at Yankee Stadium, but there's plenty of people who have played some of the greatest venues in the world. Some of them are public. So um, I think that's really great and unique. Um, there's, there's a lot to love, but I do believe that everyone loves the sport that they're passionate about and believes there's more to it than, you know, than what, you know, someone who doesn't understand things. You know what I mean? It's that, that great soccer coach, what was he saying? It's not life and death. It's more important than that. Right, exactly <laughs> that's, a, right. yeah. that's the thing. I think something you're getting at there is golf is also uniquely personal, isn't it? It's probably the only sport that I can think of, leaving aside maybe darts, where nobody has anything to do with their opponent's equipment in any way, shape or form. You and I could go and play, and trust me, I'm a much, much, much worse golfer than you, and that doesn't necessarily impact your game. It's a no. It's unique. No, hopefully it? not. Yeah, well, I've had hopefully. a couple of pairings that a couple of pairings are a two shot penalty, but yeah, maybe off a two shot penalty. Look away, Greg um, would be my tip. Look away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and I like. Um, you know, we had a game today. I just played with John Sendon, and uh, I've got Steve Allen staying at my house, and we went out with a buddy of mine and the three of us as pros, and it was me and my other friend who plays off ten. Uh-huh. You know, and we took them on. You know, so, you know, we he had his handicap and we were all playing off scratch or whatever we were chosen. Off we went sort of thing. Um, all square was the end result. But I love that we can go do that and have a competition that's not super serious, but we're still competing. He wants to do well. We want to do well. And uh, got the handicap system to sort it all out. You're right. That's never going to happen in – soccer or football, the, the other person is always going to outclass you because it's not an individual thing. We're moving the ball or we, you know, so there's definitely that to it, which is, yes, very nice. You need to be better at handicap negotiation there, Greg. If you could just have got him to 12, you guys would have won. Yes, yeah. that's what we should have done. <laughs> yes. We weren't playing for sheep stations today, so uh, next time I will definitely do that. Tell Steve Allen to check his email. He's on the list for the uh, thing about yeah, golf as well. I'll so, and I, I sent him a couple the other week, but I don't think he's checked it for a while. It's funny you mentioned, Steve, just the other day, this will put a bit of a date on when we're chatting, but just the other day I think he shot 64 or 63 in a qualifier and didn't get through. Is golf the yeah. cruelest game? Sometimes. Uh, we were talking about this today and I said to him, I said, mate, if it hasn't reduced you to tears at some point, then <laughs> you're not you doing it right. <laughs> you are trying hard enough. Um, it, it can be. I remember I, I, I bogeyed the 108th hole of Q school one year uh, to miss my card by a shot. I was over in and it still burned in my memory. I think I called my wife and she said, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, she's worried about me. And I said, look, I'm just going to go in the locker room. I'm going to cry for a little bit and then I'm going to come and I'll be on the flight home. <laughs> you know, um, it is pretty cruel. 
I think some of the best golf you might see can go on right now in Monday qualifiers if you want to see really low scores on pretty simple golf courses quite often. But, um, yeah, there's some I, – I, I think I think uh, you and Porter tweeted out something and some of these guys might be better served by exploring playing to Asia or getting out of here and, and uh, doing things like that because there's a – that Monday grind is pretty tough. Mm. Golf's just one element, and I think that's what you're touching on there, Greg, isn't it? There's a whole career management prospect, managing a schedule. Where does it suit you to play? We've seen players who we know are world-class. Michael Campbell springs to mind, went from Europe to America, wasn't comfortable in America. His game probably suffered from that. There's a, In some ways, or in many ways for you guys at your level, the golf game is the given. It's how you manage the rest of it, isn't it? The putts will fall, yeah, the fairways will be found, yeah. but you've got to manage yeah, what yeah, you've I- got. I think uh, one fellow pro, Lindsay Stephen, he said once, you really don't know how good you are until you have a family um, and you've got all of the distractions outside of that go with that and the pressures that go with that and then you've got to be go be a professional and do what you want to do and, and play well. Um, it's extremely cutthroat right now. It's very, it's extremely bunched. The difference between success and and not being successful is uh, it's such a thin line. Um, the The... The most, I guess, um, uh, it bunched up. I've seen the, the competitive. I've seen the game in my career, twenty five years as a pro, is is right now, and I mean that not from the sense of the standard. I mean the amount of people playing at the standard. Um, so yes, you do have to um, have all of those ducks in a row off the course. There's a lot more that has to be right in your life so that you can go and just concentrate and, and play well because. Yeah, like I touched on earlier, you do have to be pretty selfish sometimes and and, and sort of swap between uh, because you're your own boss. So no one's telling you to go practice. Um, no one's telling you have to go play even. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to figure all that out and get everybody on the same page and, and go do it. Greg, you're one of those guys, I guess. You've been doing that well for 20 years. What Lindsay Stevens said to you then about you don't know how good you are until you've got a family, does that make sense to you more now than perhaps when you when you first heard it? Oh, always, yeah, because I didn't have kids then. I was 22 or 3, and I'm like, well, what's this old guy talking about? <laughs> well, you uh, know everything when you're 22, you know, then, don't you? It's a yeah, great time in life. <laughs> the, yeah, kids come along, and, you know, I remember the first time I had to travel away from my family after having a son, and I'd been home for a month or so. And, A, the, the financial, I guess, if you are a person like me who is wants to provide for your family and just the financial stress of, okay, I've got to pay for all this stuff for my family and future and things. Uh, but be just being apart um, and traveling together. Gee, you travel with a lot of stuff. You know, when you've got babies, you know, you, you so there's a lot to it. You know, they're waking up in the middle of the night and you've got to get up and play. You've got to be even more patient because there's just, there's a lot to it if you don't, uh, if you want to attack it uh, together without help. Um, that, that certainly, uh, keeps you on your toes and and uh, puts you, can put you under a lot of pressure. And a lot of guys fail at it. You know, a lot of guys aren't successful. Yeah. Um, I'm thankful it happened and worked, and I got a great family now. And they're I'm on the other end. I'm coming. they more chance of moving out than they are of keeping <laughs> with us. At the moment, so it's funny you should say that, Greg. One of my best memories in golf, or one that sticks out to me the most, was seeing you at the airport. I think it might have been Maruchidor after the PGA with the giant club drove club travel bag. And I remember thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great to be a pro golfer, travel the world playing golf? And then your wife arrived with two snotty, screaming children. 
<laughs> I thought to myself, it might not be as glamorous as it looks from the outside sometimes. And I think you were going from there to the Australian Open or whatever the next tournament was. It's just a travelling circus, isn't it? And the circus doesn't stop yeah. for the family and the family doesn't stop for the circus and it's up to you to manage all of it and juggle it. Yeah, 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 that's right. And there's 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 so much of that that you have to um, you have to are you marry the right person. Uh-huh. You know, I'm about coming up to 20 years now, so I think I will kick the goal there <laughs> um, because they have to give so much of themselves to understand. Um, hey, it's it's not about me right now. He needs to go do his job, and they might be having a tough day. The kids having a tough day, and there's so much that goes on. To you have to really communicate well. There's all that you have to really get on the same page so that um, this guy can go play golf for a living, you know? So, um, yeah, it's – look, any job, if you do it long enough, can – there's parts of it. I still love the competition side of my job mm-hmm. and the preparation side of my job. Mm-hmm. I don't love sitting in a hotel um, and I don't love sitting on an airplane. But when I was a kid, sign me up, you know, we'll fly anywhere in the world to go play golf. But right now I love getting there and playing. But going back, sitting in your hotel room in a holiday inn by yourself, that loses its sex appeal yep. um, a little bit as you get older and a little jaded, but uh, I still love Thursday morning. Yeah. It's great. Skype and FaceTime are better than Telex, but they're not the same as being at home, are they? And it's those <laughs> right. things that, no, exactly. that people perhaps don't appreciate. Of course, you've had the added challenge in terms of family, Greg, of Max, your I'm not sure whether he's your first son, has autism. He is, yeah, my oldest, yeah. Your oldest has autism. What's that journey been yeah. like? Yeah, really challenging initially. Um, we've been very lucky. He's 17 now. He's diagnosed uh, around about 20 months, um, diagnosed on the spectrum, and we've been very lucky that he's, he's high-functioning. He's got his driver's licence now. He's gone. He's been in school. And he gets great grades and very intelligent little boy. Um, got some, you know, got always, you know, well, kids on the spectrum have different challenges, you know, um, whether it be social or in, you know interacting in society and fitting in, um, that's that can be really challenging sometimes. And and as a parent, worrying about will he ever be married or will he ever get a job or how will that work for him? Um, because you constantly take two steps forward, one step back um, with you know therapies and things that you try. Uh, so we've been lucky that a lot of some of the stuff we threw you know. For us, we threw 100 darts at the at the board, and in terms of therapy options, and we a we could afford it, and b some of them worked. Um, so he's a you know really high functioning boy right now, and honestly, just probably you'd think he's a little quirky. Um, who isn't? And so yeah, it's um, it's been quite a journey though, and we're not done yet. So there's always challenges in front of us and stuff we've got to meet. You of course have a foundation set up. Max, and yeah, you, so you do a lot yeah, of work. Tell us about that. Max and Chances, uh, probably about five, six years ago, and just a small footprint that we we originally we were paying for some friends of ours who have a son on the spectrum, and we were paying for speech there, uh, behavior therapy just out of our own pocket. And uh, we always wanted to start a charity, and, and I, I went to my golf club and said, you know, could we have a charity golf day if I, you know, get my charity? And my charity's already set up by my wife um she runs it and uh, uh we pay for speech behavioral occupational therapy uh doctor visits for families who can't afford it basically so it's a little ex- it's expensive for people and we've got some really cool stories we've raised about 1.2 one you know over a million dollars um 
And most of that, the vast majority of that, we don't pay. Uh, we pay one girl to do our books. We try to be a small but effective sort of mm-hmm. charity so all that money gets back out in the community. What is autism, Greg? I think most of us have some sort of notion of it, but I suspect most of us don't understand really. And what have you learned? I imagine you've learned an enormous amount in the last 17 <laughs> you know, years. That would be a great, the greatest question for my wife. She has a PhD in in, in ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, really hard for me to put into words because I, I personally I get emotional about it, mate, and mm-hmm. that doesn't help describing what it is. Um you know, I could probably bring my my son in and explain it, but it's it's it could be social challenges, it could be um, academic challenges, it could be sensory. Um, it's you know, does the lights in the room upset you? Um, you could be nonverbal. You know, these are all the things that um, that could or may not may happen. Um, so I know with our son, we taught him to teach him sign language. We've done nine years of speech therapy. Um, these are the kind of things that, you, you know, as a challenge you, you will face if, if you're given, if the doctors uttered those words to you. you know? And so honestly, when it first happened, I had, I had no idea what the journey would be like. Um, and we still have moments where I'm like, I, I, I'm confused. I don't know what to do right now. Um, luckily my wife has poured her, her heart into it and, uh, she has made her son, um, I call it like a PhD in her son. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't know everything about autism, but she's learned a lot about what he needs to be the best he can be. I don't have kids myself, but I know what happened. Kids become your life, don't they? And I would imagine that's on steroids. When you've got a son like Max, uh, this right. does, it doesn't discriminate. Does it? We know Ernie Els's son has autism. He's raised enormous sums of money, and I imagine that brethren is the wrong word, but the, those like yourself who have children on the spectrum are a bit of a, a club. You understand each other, I imagine, in a way that most of the rest of us can't. Yeah, yeah. So I know Ernie. Um, I've spoken to some other dads as well. You know, I, 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 sorry, I'm sort of no, jumping okay. around a little bit, but I have spoken to Ernie. Mm-hmm. Um, not much. Of, I just asked him how Ben's doing, yeah, yeah. how his boy's doing. Um, I just spoke to a dad the other day about, because it's a different journey for dads. Um, so I spoke to him a little bit about, you know, they just found out that their three-year-old twins, you know, are on the on the spectrum. And so what he's going through as a father Um the there's some stuff that you face as a parent of a child on the spectrum that only a parent of a child on the spectrum can and will ever understand. Um, a small example might be the first time I came home and Max was on a computer and we had just been trying this new therapy and I said, hey, Max, how are you? And he looked up from the computer and said, hi, Dad, and made eye contact. And the fact that he looked up said hello correctly and made eye contact correctly was like three victories, right? Now, as a normal parent, I think at that point he might have been six or seven or so. Now, a parent of a typical child mm-hmm. would be like, yeah, no big deal. Yeah. 
I, I, I'm about to do cartwheels myself. Like I thought this is the greatest thing ever, right? So you tend to revel in, and a parent of a child who's on the spectrum would understand that because you revel in the little victories, yeah. you know. Um, that might have taken us months or years of therapy to figure out or work with or, you know, get him to do. So it's it's definitely a lot of a lot of that goes on. You've got to fight a little harder sometimes. Uh, your challenges are different. Uh, but hopefully you can get them to a point where, you know, they can function in society and, and contribute because they have a lot to contribute sometimes. My, my son, there's some things, he's an absolute genius, an absolute genius to come to stats and, and numbers and things like that. So there's a place there, we just got to find it. Well, it's not a lack of intelligence, is it, Greg? And that's probably no, something that's misunderstood. But in fact, it's probably the opposite. Many people on the spectrum are extraordinarily intelligent. They may not be great communicators, but... They're very intelligent. That's my understanding. I've heard other people talk about – we'll we'll come back to golf shortly, but I'm intrigued by this because to juggle a golf career in this is – wow, that is hard work, (laughs) I would imagine. But I've heard others talk about not just having kids with special needs or perhaps having an illness. It's a path you'd never choose, but having been down it, it's one that you'd never swap. Does that make sense to you? Would you put yourself in that position? Yeah, no, I don't want anything different at all. I, like, I would never change. I mean, yeah, not to get too holistic, but your journey—that's that's the journey we we're on. I wouldn't want to change it at all because along the way, there's been some wonderful challenges, but there's been a lot of success as well. Um, and that's what it's all about. Um, I don't. I wouldn't want to swap with anybody um, because a, I wouldn't have some of the moments that I've had that are absolute, you know, this is brilliant. I can't believe, you know, one of my boys just did this, that, and the other. Um, and I think it's been wonderful for uh, us as a family. It's been wonderful for my wife. It's even good from, you know, in a lot of ways for my younger son. He helps my older son mm-hmm. in certain points because he's the quite opposite. He's a very social boy and wants to be around people. And so he's brilliant at now understanding his older brother. Um, so, there's a lot to it that I would I absolutely wouldn't change in the, for anything. Mm. You say golf exposes character. I would imagine this family life that you've got must expose and test character at times as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think part of it is I've always been open to the idea, um, and my wife is as well, of hey, we, we don't know everything, but we need to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We need to do everything we can because we're lucky enough to be able to afford to do it to help him. And so the hardest part, I would say, I think my wife would say, the hardest part is just a massive learning curve. Because when someone says to you, hey, we think your son has autism, where do you go? What do you do? That's overwhelming, isn't it? We had to, she definitely had to learn a lot because there's so many times um, she would have to go find a therapist to help us with a certain thing. I got I to go play golf, you know. So <laughs> there's there's a lot going on that someone had to drive the bus on it, and thankfully she did. Um, and and it got gets very challenging at certain points, but uh, man, she's she's done such a good job. It's yeah. a joke. In some ways, Greg, getting to go play golf from the outside looks like well, that would be a bit of a relief. But in some ways, that must almost be harder not to be able to be there to help and be a part all the time. You don't get a choice as a golfer, do you? You don't get to well, – you can choose your yeah, own schedule on those things, the, but you're limited the, yeah. in your ability to take time away. Yeah, the better you play, the more choices you have. Yeah. And I hadn't really – it's only been a couple of times in my career I've played well enough where I could honestly 
just kick my feet up and go, yeah, I don't really need to play that right now because I've got these majors and world golf championships coming up. More often than not, uh, because of the schedule, the way it's set, I don't get in a lot of events anyway. So I'd just be like, i got to go play this one right now. Um, and so, yeah, there's there, – there definitely – I don't know. It definitely didn't feel like an escape for me. It was just something – I, I got to do this. Um, I wish – you know, I wish I could be home right now, but I crunched the numbers on it one time. I think I had more time at home than a lot of guys who might work from seven, nine till seven, you know, or not, you know, like because I'm home every, um, for a full week, 20 odd weeks a year, you know, so, and I'm present and I can do whatever I want when I'm home. So like when you're home, you're home, aren't you? That's the upside that you're there. Yeah. You take yeah the I don't kids have to, to go anywhere. Yeah. If I don't want, I can practice while they're at school or something. Yeah. So, um, there's, there's plenty of upside to it, uh, but it, there there are you know there's are some times when you're sitting in your holiday inn and your wife just had a terrible day because you know your son's had a rough day yeah. that it's not so sexy. But that's you know every job has those moments. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Let's come back to golf. It's been a really interesting career, Greg. You won the Australian Amateur Champion, I think, 1993, if I'm not mistaken. Scott Hen told me that when he was an amateur, you were the gun. You were the one with the target on your back. You were the best amateur in the country, and you were the one that everybody wanted to be. Do you remember those times? And what do you remember about yeah. those times? Oh, you know, I remember. I, I remember. I turned. I I was. I think I was the best amateur in the country when I turned pro. Um, sort of ninety four. I turned pro. Was it the end of ninety five? Ninety six? Ninety seven? Yeah. So. End of '95, um, I'd won. I'd, I it was uh, because I'd won the Australian Amateur in '93. I had two years to announce that I was in those days to turn pro. I do look back at some of those times, particularly early in my career, and I wish I believed I was as good as I was playing mm, uh, because I played some pretty damn good golf straight out of the gate as a pro. Straight out of the gate, 98 was a great year. Um, 21st on the main list in Europe after losing my card the year before. Win the Australian Open, finished third at Q School, get my card in America. And I still thought I was average. And I really, I really suffered from that Australian don't get too big for your boots syndrome. Mm. And it's all poppy. And I wish, I look back at that now, and I, the only part I really wish I had more, no, dude, you're pretty damn good at this right now. Um, that that'd be something I look back on. If regret's the right word, then it is what it is. But yeah, that's something I look back and think, man, you, you played so good then, and you look back and and look at the numbers and the career, and it's like you didn't think like you were playing that good. What? Why do uh, you think, Greg? Because that's not to do with I, golf, is it? That's to do with Greg Chalmers. Yes. Yeah, you're right, and and I think it comes back to what I said earlier: the game finds your weakness. And my, my weakness has been and always will be, um, I was I just didn't believe in myself as much as I should. Are you too nice a I guy? Didn't believe, what's that, mate? Are you too nice a guy? <laughs> so that's the other thing. I was I possibly didn't have enough prick in me. Mm-hmm. All right? I didn't have enough mongrel in me. And it took me a long time to learn that, uh, probably until I came over here and you're getting trampled on by players that you think you're better than, and you're like, they're cocky and they're, they're good and they're arrogant, and I'm like, I don't want to be like that, though. And I'm like, eventually I kind of learned, well, you better find a way to transfer it in, in and out of that state 
or you're never going to make it um, because that lack of confidence or belief in yourself, eventually you'll play up and down to your beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I played down to my beliefs. I didn't play up. So that that affected me for a long time because I just didn't want to be too big for my boots. I didn't want to be that guy. Um, and so, sure, that's the positives are, you know, I've got a great family. I think mm-hmm. I'm a pretty decent dad and a pretty decent husband and blah, blah, blah. Um, but did it help me on the golf course? Not really. Mm. You know, so you have to have some rungle in you. You have to have some, you know, can I say prick? You have to have some of that in you. Yeah, you already did. Um, you already did, so feel free to do it. Yeah. You, you, you've you've got set, some of that in you. Set the time. Yeah, because there's, there's just no future in being super nice all the time. You've got to have some fire in you. Well, look. I've asked around and I can't find anyone to say a bad word about it. Not even Scott Hend. So you must be doing something right. If Hendy didn't say it, it must be true. That's a really internal struggle there, Greg. You don't get to the point where you can win the Australian Amateur, win the Australian Open in 98, do the things you've done without there being a competitor burning within. You just simply can't do it. Talent alone won't get you. There's a lot of blokes with talent. So, But then you've got this other Greg Chalmers where you obviously you get to a point you're not comfortable being better than that or Something. I'm not sure if I've articulated right. that well, but that's that's yeah, a it's, struggle. It's it's a little strange. I would say this: there've been moments in my career where I have, once I've got in the heat of battle, I have played up and played fine and won. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, I haven't looked at that moment and gone, "Man, you played so good there. You're really good at this game. Let's go get it now." I've looked at it more, not on purpose, just subconsciously. Like, oh, no, you're not that good. You need to keep working hard. You're not that good, right? And that kept me working hard, sure, and that's probably contributed to my some of my success because I've always put time and effort into the game, but it didn't help me break through and be something that I possibly could have been given how good I was playing in the late 90s uh, leading up to, you know, coming over here. Uh, not to interrupt a two-time Australian Open winner, but just a quick reminder that this is episode 25 of the show, and there is plenty of great stuff to be found in the previous 24. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you haven't already done so, check out the back catalogue. You can find that at the Golf Australia website at golfaustralia.com.au and click on the podcast tab. Also, don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at at ThingGolf, that's capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F, and you can message me direct with any feedback to at Rod underscore Murray, that's M for Mary, O-R-R-I. My DMs are open and I do read all of them and do try to respond to all as well. Now, back to Greg Chalmers. Winning is such an elusive thing, isn't it, Greg? We measure careers by victories. But it's such an elusive. There is no textbook. I think Jeff Ogilvy put it beautifully once. He said, "There's could'ves and should'ves in golf. There's ones you could have won, and you walk away and go, okay, well, things had gone a bit different. I hit that shot differently. And there's others you walk away and go, oh, that was mine to lose, and I did lose it. There's no formula, is there? You've won. You've come close to winning. It's a as golf as a it, it could drive you mad, couldn't it? If you measured yourself only by the wins, because you spend a lot of time in golf. Not you spend most of the time in golf." Not win. Yeah, Even Tiger doesn't it, it, win most of the time. Right, right. And, and look, I say this: um, I think one of the biggest challenges has always been if you sit down and look at like there's 140 players playing this week, 150, whatever it is. How many truly walk away happy? Mm-hmm. And the answer is one. And sometimes 
even he yeah. <laughs> might be, oh, yeah, I should have won by four. I didn't do this. I didn't, you know what I mean? Yep. And so if you extrapolate that over a year, a career, you end up keep filling your bucket with the wrong energy. Yeah. You know, you keep putting garbage water in there, muddy water in your bucket instead of clear water because that's, that's not going to help you because you're judged by this, I didn't win. Mm-hmm. When you could have a fabulous career and never win. Right, and people be like, "Oh, he never won." Well, yeah, he's joined sitting on his yacht right now. So <laughs> I guess he he's won something. Yeah, you know? yeah. Absolutely. So, is there a hippie oh, lurking within you, Greg Chalmers? You've What's that, mate? Is there a hippie lurking with you there somewhere? You've mentioned oh, holistic I and like journeys, and I like thinking about things a little bit. Yeah, is that good for a golfer? Mm, no, I wish I was. <laughs> I wish I was a little dumber sometimes. A little dumber. I get my own way more than I help. I think. But I'm still doing it, Rod, so that's okay. I must have done something right. Well, we're going to talk about some of your victories shortly because there's been some important ones in there and some impressive ones, and I'm not sure you get the kudos you should for the career that you've had uh, because it's been quite remarkable. Keeping your card on the PGA Tour for the best part of two decades is an achievement that people don't pay enough mind to. I think you've had a couple of years in there where you've lost it. For, for near, near enough to two decades, you've played most of your golf on the PGA Tour. Do we pay that enough credit? And it's a much bigger question. How fine are the lines at the top level? I'm not sure us amateur golfers appreciate just how well, how razor edge failure and success. Oh, um, yeah, you, you guys have no idea. Um, it's 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 a joke right now. The difference between success and failure. It's it's an, like give you an example. I missed the cut last week on four under par. Bogey the last hole to miss the cut. I played with Pat Perez. Pat made four putts. He was on eight under par, beat me by four shots, and Pat made four putts from outside 25 feet mm-hmm. in two days. I didn't make any outside 10 feet. Pat's playing the weekend on eight under and I'm not. Now, the difference for the 25 to 30 footer to go in or not is what? A blade of grass? Maybe. Like it's it's nothing. It's infinitesimal, yeah. right? So – did he hit better putts than me from 25, 30 feet? No, his went in and mine didn't. You know, so the, the the line between success and failure is is so thin right now you can't even see the darn thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's nuts over here right now. Um, I don't know, you know, as we've seen the what I would call the de-skilling of the game, mm-hmm. um, as we've seen that happen, it's made it possible. For all of us, no one drives it bad now. We all drive it great. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone hits it kind of long-ish, you know, at the worst. You know, I'm I'm longer now at 47 than I've ever been. Wow. You know, that makes zero sense, but that's what it is. Um, so when you do that with the equipment and the way that's gone, then here we are. Mm-hmm. We have an extremely bunched talent pool. So the extreme talent really struggles to stand out because everyone's kind of really talented it's just the gaps aren't as large. Yeah. So, yeah. What was the first part of that question? I missed. I, I can't remember. Keeping your card on the tour. For oh, the that, best part of two decades. Yeah, Do yeah, we I, underrate that? I don't that? know if that needs to be recognised. I don't. I don't. To be honest, I've never really. I. I just don't care. I. I know. I'm happy. I'll, I'll sit on the porch one day and say, "Yeah, I had a. You know, I've really enjoyed it already. If it's ended tomorrow, I've, I've really enjoyed my career. I'm. I'm very happy with how it's going and. I just love playing the game competitively and I don't need anybody to pat me on the back. I'm very – I'm excited about how it's going and it's all good. Yeah. 
Let's go back to the 1998 Australian Open. You just sort of mentioned offhandedly there that you played well and you won the Australian Open. It was just no ordinary Australian Open to win, was it? It was jam-packed with a President's Cup field of some pretty remarkable players. If I recall, it was a particularly difficult Sunday there at Royal Adelaide. It played very, very difficult, uh, lots of wind and, and whatnot. What do you recall about that week? Uh, and what what did you do particularly well, do you feel, if you assume um, you can remember it I, fairly it, clearly? I was it. I, did, I was just I was playing well. I just got my card in America. I just finished, like I said, I twenty first on the money list in Old America in Europe. Go to I flew over to Palm Springs. Uh, finished third in the Q School over there in six rounds. Came back, got into Australia on the Monday uh, into Adelaide. Um, okay, ready to play Australian Open on a tough venue. It looked like even par, as it turned out. I won on even par. It was really. Really tough week. Rough was up, windy, dry, mm-hmm. toasty kind of weather. Um, I was—I don't remember being super aware that there was all these, you know, wonderful players there. I've looked at the field since, and yes, you're right. There were, there were a lot of great players there. <laughs> More intimidating uh, now than they were at the time, Greg. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I—I I remember the last day pretty, pretty vividly. I mean, I, I hold a nice putt for par in the first, about six, eight feet. Birdie two, birdie three, par four, birdie five. And I think I was three under through six, and all of a sudden I was in front by a handful, I think, like four, three or four at least. I was playing with Peter Senior, who, you know, ironically is one of my heroes, and we growing up watching golf. So um, it was um, – then it was kind of hanging on, you know, and uh, I managed to hang on, and I think Stewie had a putt to tie me on the last hole. Peter was close. Um but I managed to bogey the last after driving in the fairway bunker and, and, and win my first Australian Open. Um, I probably didn't know at the time how big of a deal it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I look back now and wish I knew how big of a deal it was. But I, I don't. when I say that, I don't mean in terms of I, I knew how big the Australian Open is. I just didn't realise how that I could kick on from that uh-huh. um, and believe in myself and, and go play great golf elsewhere. What is that about, Greg? Uh, probably I, think, I think it's yeah. I think that I, it, it's a. I don't know if you want to call it a. To be honest, I don't know if you want to call it a weakness or just a, a challenge of mine. I just I never wanted to be the center of attention. I never wanted to be that guy in a fishbowl, and that doesn't match up with a career mm-hmm. in professional sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to want attention. I kind of I love playing well. Mm-hmm but I don't love the attention that goes with playing well very much. I kind of like my own, you know, just be in my own space kind of thing. So um, I would, yeah, I definitely didn't achieve or jump on my own bandwagon as much as I probably should have to achieve greater things. Golf seems to bring that out more in people than perhaps other sports. I think of Annika Sorenstam, who early in her career as an amateur with three putt the last green just so she didn't have to give a speech. Carrie Webb's a, a shy person. It's a bit odd, isn't it? Is it? I wonder whether it's perhaps because it's such a singular pursuit. In a team environment, there's less direct pressure in there for both the good and the bad. You have all the glory and all of the shame in golf, don't you? All of it is on you. Yes, yes. So. Um, and I think when I being, I was a pretty shy kid as well. And I think the fact that it was by myself playing the game mm-hmm. was a positive. Mm-hmm. But then you got to a point where, hey, you know, if you win, you got to make speeches. That's uncomfortable. Or, you know, if you get to the next level and you're playing for Australia and as an amateur and 
that can get uncomfortable. And, and so, yeah, there's lots of points in your career where it's, it's eternally challenging. It's much, I think it's much easier for someone who just craves attention and loves being in that situation. They will play up to that because they want to be there. Um, I enjoyed winning and I enjoyed competing and I wanted to get the best out of myself, but I really didn't enjoy people looking at me and judging and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's the psychology of it. Um, we could talk, you know, I could sit on the couch for hours about that, but that's just, um, that's one of the challenges I've faced throughout my career. Phil Mickelson's the opposite, isn't he? Your fellow left-hander, he does love the limelight. It's obvious, and he enjoys it. He hands it up. And, in fact, the stronger the spotlight generally, the better he will perform. Uh, so it's interesting yeah. he's just born that way. Bryson, we know, likes the spotlight sometimes, Greg, but not all the time. Yes, that last week. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah. let's take a quick bit. He's... He's an interesting character. I know he's polarizing and divisive. There's a lot of people don't like him, and there's a lot of people that think he's fantastic. What's your take as a PGA Tour player? He's got to be doing you a favor, doesn't he? He's attracting attention to the game. Oh, uh, look, polarizing's great. Mm. You know, it, you, I don't care if you turn on the TV to hate him or love him, as long as you turn on the TV. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's what it is in a nutshell. You, I found myself wanting to watch him, mm-hmm. and I don't watch a lot of just regular events unless my buddies are playing well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with everything going on right now, I'm like, golf's on, we're watching. There's nothing else to watch. But I wanted to see how he did because yeah. uh, he wasn't, you know, the other young fellow was leading, uh, Matt Wolf, And, uh, I, he, you know, th- what he's done with his body slash gaining 10 to 15% in, in distance, even though he was already long anyway, mm-hmm. um, is, and still able to hit it straight is quite incredible. That's the extraordinary um, thing, isn't it? You see the long drivers, like, you can teach yourself to whack it a long way, but to hit it, to play – Top level golf hitting at that distance, that really is quite frightening, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he drove it great down the stretch uh, under pressure. He ripped it down 18. I remember he drove it left on 17, but he knew where to go there. Um, hit a lot of fairways, kid 10, hit 11, uh, 12. So he did, did, he did everything he needed to do. And it's an easy game when you got a love wedge in your hand pretty much yeah. 80% of the time yeah. um, at our level. Particularly, you can, there's not a pin you can't go at. Mm-hmm. Um, so look out. It's going to be interesting to see how he evolves and how well he does because I don't know what's going to happen. His back could blow out tomorrow with all that speed, but um, it makes you want to turn on and watch, though. Yeah. There's a lot of hoopla overshadowing what is actually essentially a really good player. He was down here in 2015 as an amateur. He played in that Masters that Peter Senior won. He might have even finished second. And we did a, an interview with him for an outlet I was working with at the time, and uh, he was an interesting character to, talk, character to talk to, but we stood and watched him on the range before the interview, and I walked away going, well, wow, this guy really can play. He is a better golfer, I think, than we're giving him credit for sometimes because we're focusing on all the other stuff about him, all the hoopla. But, my goodness, he can play the game, can't he? He really can hit it. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I think his, I think his coach at SMU summed it up and he said he's either going to be the number one player in the world or end up in a mental asylum. <laughs> Maybe you both. Know? He's kind of on track for that both probably- at the moment. <laughs> The mental side part is probably most pro golfers, though, to be honest. That's right. He'll have plenty of company in there and lots of people to talk about. Yeah, we've got a few straight jackets. Indeed. Let's fast forward 13 years to the 2011 Australian Open. The President's Cup comes back to Australia, and Greg Chalmers once again steps to the fore and takes out. You were, you were, I backed you last year with the President's Cup. You backed me? Of course I backed you last year. It's a President's Cup year. Chalmers will have to win the Australian Open. What do, you remember about, what do you remember about that one? Because 13 years of a golf career, it's a very different Greg Chalmers that steps to the first tee of the lakes Thursday morning, and I imagine yeah. you would have known well, this it, time. 
again, I got out. I was doing. I was doing well. Uh, I can't remember if I was like uh, I wasn't in the last group, so I wasn't leading. I was sort of around the lead, but I hit it close on. I think I birdied one and two, and I definitely birdied two. I hit it like five feet. Um, uh, part three got through that stretch. It's a tough little third hole. And then I got, you know, now I'm, I think I birdied another one. He'd be three under. Again, I'm three under through it's like six or seven. Um, and kind of in front of people. And then, you know, getting through 10 to 10 and 12 on those, that course is tough for me. And I, I got through that. I parred 12. I, I'm not a great driver of the ball sometimes. And I was struggling that week a little bit. But I drove it well on 12, hit it up edge of the green, and then I birdied 13, did not birdie 14. The shot of the day for me was 17, uh, sorry, uh, 15, the par three. I hit a seven iron to about two feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got up and down on 16 out of the greenside bunker. The up and down on 18 was pretty special too. Like I, I, pulled, I pulled a six iron in the right trap. I had a 40-yard bunker shot back against the wind, hit it to five, six feet and made it. Uh, those days have a great energy about them, you know, like a, a really cool things are going my way here. I've just got to find that balance between staying out of my way and and just, you know, hitting good shots when I need to. And and I and I did a great job. And Johnny Sanders, a good friend of mine, he missed a you know, about a forty footer by a couple of inches on the last hole. So um but the story was all tiger, you know. Of course. So well it always is. Isn't I remember it? <laughs> watching I came home and I was sitting having a drink just watching the you know TV and uh, Nikki had taped it, my wife, and and uh, I'm looking and I'm like, and Luke Elvey was doing the commentary and I'm friends with Luke and I was sort of, I, I've told him this story and, and uh, at the end of the telecast, they have a shot of the day and Luke's doing his thing. He said, the shot of the day, and I'm like, wow, was it my bunker shot on 18 or was it this or was it, and he goes, Tiger Woods with an eagle on 14. And I'm like, oh, come on, man, you know, I won the tournament. You can't tell me he won shot, but... That gets your clicks, so doesn't it? So. He's Tiger, isn't he? I mean, yeah, that's right. I get it. You might have been the only player to hit the fifteenth green that day. I think they changed that green after that tournament. It was pretty controversial, if I recall, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it, yeah, it needed to be dug up. But the, the pin was on the right that day, and the wind was off the right a little bit, sort of down off the right. And I hit a seven iron about two feet. It was probably the easier pin on that green. The back back right pin is horrendous. That's a really hard pin, but. Um, yeah, Clates, uh, <laughs> probably, probably not his best work, that one, but he's, I think he's fixed it now. So. He'll argue the toss with you about anything all day, as you well know. Mm-hmm. You always have a million yeah. good points to make, and you walk away thinking, I know I'm right. How did I not win that argument with him? That's crazy. <laughs> so, but uh, there you go. It, it, you then, of course, and I want to fast forward to one that I was – I watched you in 2011 on TV, but in 2014 I was at Royal Pines for what was just an epic – Event. There were two tournaments, weren't there? There was a 72 hole tournament. And then there was right. G-, G Chalmers from the trees versus A Scott out of his own divot seven times on the 18th oh, yeah. at Royal Pines. What do you remember about that? Because I didn't, and I don't think anybody in the crowd, particularly after the first three or four playoff holes, I think you hit it in the trees three times out of the seven, perhaps. You oh, just- uh, no, out of seven, I hit it in the, I didn't hit the fairway. I hit the fairway <laughs> one time. <laughs> That's right. So nobody was going to back you to win it. Adam Scott's. Adam Scott, he's got that picture perfect ball mm. swing and everything's just fantastic. What do you recall about that? And does that situation, funnily enough, if you look at your victories here in Australia particularly, they tend to have been in these bigger 
events where there's much more focus. I know that the limelight's not what you perhaps crave, but does it bring something mm. out in you maybe? Could you make that case or is, are we reading something in there that, or am I reading something in there that's not there? Um, no, I, look, it's it. I feel oddly comfortable, as I've said, once I'm actually immersed in it. Uh-huh. But I don't crave to be in it prior to, mm-hmm. you know, playing golf. You know what I mean? Like, I, um but what happened that day was kind of wild. I, it was a windy day. It was prior to the, the back nine being changed, the front nine had been changed. It was two golf courses, um, wasn't it? It was a new front nine and an old back nine, and some of them yes. were settled. The greens yeah, were different and it speeds. Was, it was quite different, but yeah. it kind of easy back nine and, and, yeah. and front nine was more challenging. But I got – I was playing with Brett Rumford, and I got out of the gate with a – uh, about a 50 footer on number two, and about a 60, 70 footer on number three, and about an eight footer on number four, birdie, birdie, birdie. Um, and the best thing I did all day was just not stop pushing um, because I got five under through 10. I birdied 10 to get to five under. And uh, I, you could, if you're just happy with that, just kind of cruise, you know, like try and get it at the house. And I birdied 12 and 16 and 18, uh, 15, yeah, 16 and uh, 15 and 18, par fives, two par fives on the back nine and 18 um, for eight under. So I honestly, at the time, I don't think, I, I thought that's half a chance, but I, I think, you know, between Scotty, as good as he is, and Wade Ormsby playing great, leading, he was in front by a couple at that point, I think they'll get it done. Like, it's, it should, I'll just go and have a sandwich and just see what happens. Um, so sure enough, we end up in the playoff, and Wade, we still kind of not – I don't remind him, but I joke with him. I'm like, dude, that was yours. You know, because he had six feet there, or eight feet to yep. win the thing up in the yeah. first time or second time around. I actually went to my caddy to shake his hand. Uh, Cole Burwood caddies for me down there. He used to work for Craig Perry for a number of years and Robert Allenby, and he just comes in and does two events for me. And uh, I went to shake Cole's hand and because, you know, there's no way he's going to miss this, mate. He's, and he, he said, just wait. Let's just watch. And I just made a 20 foot of the par, I think. So I'm like, yeah, okay. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Anyway, <laughs> he, he missed. <laughs> yeah. doesn't know what he's talking uh, <laughs> And I, I'll say this um, even though, you know, it's been, as you talked about belief patterns and things that, you know, there is, one of my assets has been uh, I'm, I, do, I am determined. And I remember sort of thinking to myself, look, I, I may not win this with a birdie, but I'm not losing it to a bogey. You, you got to beat me. Mm-hmm. You've got to beat me. And then all of a sudden, Scotty just kept having what, for a right-hander, I would think is just the perfect situation, like a wedge in your hand, 130 yards, wind off the right, pin on the left. Um, I think you should be able to button this in there pretty soon. You keep it in the same spot. Um, never did, and then he three-putted. So crazy. Before you know it, they're handing you the trophy. So kind of a nuts um way to finish the tournament. I honestly thought we were going to be there forever. Oh, so did um, I. Yeah. <laughs> so did I. Well, at one, at one point they came and offered us a cart. <laughs> and that? they said to me, do you want to have a golf cart? And it sucked up like five holes. I said, mate, sign me up because I'm really tired. <laughs> I'm old. And Scotty refused, right? He didn't want one. And I'm like, yeah, you young, fit bastard. Of course you don't want one. But anyway, it was it was great. I, and, you know, sometimes you get lucky. You know, I got lucky in the other one too a little bit with – uh, Marcus Fraser and Robert Allen being a playoff in the PGA. You know, Marcus drove in the water at Coolum and Rob hit it right in the trees and had to chip out. You know, Rob didn't miss a lot of fairways. So um, I was sitting there just having to make part of win. So 
sometimes it works in your favour. Can you do it without luck, Greg? I'm not convinced you can win golf tournaments without. I mean, a, a, over 72 holes, if you've won, no. there's no way you, no, you haven't had you a lucky bounce. Yes. And it, it depends on what your definition of luck is. Okay. Like, for me, there's an element of luck just to make a 30 foot putt, yeah. you know, because they can bounce in the first two feet and go offline. So, um, yeah, you need, you need to be fortunate. Um, there's, I always say that, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I guess, mentoring. I'm talking to young kids, you know, high school golfers or college golfers. I'm like, okay, you've got a 72-hole tournament coming up. How many times are you going to face adversity? And it makes them think. I said, you, you think this is going to go perfectly. It's not. Like, be prepared. You're going to face adversity. At some point, there's going to be a stretch of holes where it doesn't go your way. And how you come out of that is going to determine whether or not you're successful this week. If you get in your own way and start complaining and get and then drop more shots, or do you make your mistakes as minimal as possible? Um, that's usually the difference between you know somewhat success and failure, depending on what your definition of that is. But yeah, you do need luck, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it was Peter Senior who said it years ago, and I've never forgotten. He said, "Yeah, at the top level, it's not about your good golf; it's about your bad." You've got to improve yes. your bad golf. Everybody's good golf is good, but if you can yes. turn 72 into 70 on your bad day out of four days at come Sunday, that's the important golf. The, the 70 yeah. you shot on Friday afternoon in the wind and the rain when you weren't hitting it well, that's what really yeah. counts. So. And, and as someone who's done it for a while, I can tell you the amount of times I've, I've watched like great players like Tiger or, you know, through my era, Greg Norman, and they'll, they'll, have, they'll churn out scores on days where I'm, I'm thinking to myself, don't you ever have a day where you just show up and you've got like you feel like garbage, your rhythm's off, and because that happens to me like once a week, yeah. and they find a way to turn that into two under, yeah. and you know some of us find a way to turn that into three over, and you're out of the tournament. Well, so. and and you wonder what breakdown percentage of it would it be impossible to ever calculate what percentage of that is mental and what is physical because your physical skills don't change, do they? They fluctuate. But they're within right. a range. I mean, you know, you're never going to hit it 40 yards offline. You're just not. You're a professional golfer. That's that's not how it works. So it's it's it, what percentage of that is. I'm not swinging. Well, I remember following you at Lake Karen up a couple of years ago, and I actually came up to you after the round and said so. I can't imagine you could have played any worse. But just to, watching, you could see there was no mental give up, and I think that's probably. To me, from observing, that's the greatest difference between amateurs, and particularly handicapped players, double digits, and pros. I know, after I've had three wipes in the first four holes, I've given up for the day. That's it. Right. I'm done. You can't right. afford to as a pro, can you? It might be the first lesson you learn. Every shot is extremely oh. valuable. Well, you you think about um, like that tournament that you're talking about, it, it, like, I mean, I've just flown from Dallas, Texas, to Lake Karen up to my old – hometown one of my hometowns growing you know growing up as a kid uh, i've got family and friends out watching me play um i can't throw the towel in <laughs> you know I, apart from the fact i've also got you know i like to pay some bills and yeah. but it's more it'd be more embarrassing i think if you did do lack of effort and play like garbage um effort is controllable so i i'm always going to put that in yeah um, because I might not be able to out-talent you, but I might be able to out-effort you sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get fueled sometimes by watching players give up. I'm like, oh, this guy's no chance. You know, so um, there's times in my career where I play with people and, you know, I've, I've, I've watched and I'm going, 
yeah, this this guy's not going to do any good here if he doesn't toughen up a little bit. I look at it as more be, just be hardened a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you see much of that? What do you see in the younger generation? We all get older, and as we get older, I think it seems this is what happens now that I'm old. I understand this. But mm. When I was young, I never understood it when older people would say, but you look at the world differently, don't you? Do you see a difference in the next generation of golfers? The biggest difference in the game, it would seem to me professionally, is the amount of money in it, and that has attracted a whole bunch more people than perhaps might have thought about turning pro previously, guys who might have played other sports now coming to golf. Do you see a difference in this next generation of golfers, I feel like, and I'm just going to say it straight out, I don't feel like many, a lot of the younger pros really care about golf. And I feel like years ago there was less. I think most golfers loved the game beyond just what it could give them professionally, financially. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get what you're saying. I'm not sure. So if you're talking about young um, players over here on the PGA Tour, mm-hmm. um, it always seems to a little bit for me reflect, you know, society. There's there's some guys who really get life and, and get what it's all about um, and there's some guys who have no clue. Um, there's some guys who get what – I think part of the problem with, with what we have now with – these guys aren't as – I don't feel like they're as challenged. Mm-hmm. I think there's some guys – who really could play with nine clubs or seven clubs because they don't need the four iron and the five. They haven't had to hit that in years. Uh-huh. You know, like I'm exaggerating, but not by much. They're so far, <laughs> um, they're wearing out their eight and their nine iron and their wedges, but they're really not using. They're not being challenged in certain areas of the bag very often. Um, you know, I, it, when you get into these discussions, sometimes you sound like the old the old man saying, "Get off my lawn." Yep. But I, I really wish they could experience, you know, young guys today could experience the climbing long iron, you know, uh-huh. that just starts out low and spins and climbs, you know, that Brett Ogle would hit. Or, oh, wow. Um, you know, you could hit into the wind sometimes or, you know, the, the, the feel of a wooden driver, you know, the, the softness to it that it didn't go anywhere, but, gee, it felt good, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, leather grips, um, you know, all the pure things about the game that – Maybe, maybe missing mm-hmm. uh, from some people. Um, hard to tell, and you know, money can do that to sports sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you talk to a lot of older players above my generation, you know, if you go another generation up, you know, they used to have beers at night and go talk to each other. Yeah, <laughs> that ain't happening anymore. <laughs> so it changes every generation, um, and you know, it's up to history to decide if if the changes are good or not. Mm. Um, we'll see. I was inter- I'm interested to hear you say that the players don't know that they're missing out on something, but they are. But as are the fans, are they not? I, I, I must have said this ad nauseum. We will never get the joy of watching Rory McIlroy think about one iron or forward to the 15th at Augusta. Right. So, so we miss it. Yeah. Because it's never going to be more than a five iron for him. So he misses out in some ways. But we miss out. We've got all that footage of Jack doing that. And we know we've watched the guys lay up. And we've Chip yeah. Beck laid up and we saw how that worked. We don't yeah. we won't ever see that again. And I, I wonder whether that's good for the game. Um it, I because we don't know because we're in our current world, mm-hmm. um 
I I'm not a massive fan of what's happened mm-hmm. uh, with the with the equipment in the last twenty years. Has it helped uh, you, Greg? Are you saying that from a position where perhaps twenty years ago, move everything back twenty years, would you still be playing the PGA Tour at forty seven with the old equipment? No, I don't don't think so. No, it's absolutely helped me. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I'm 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 better at driving the ball now than I've ever been in my career. Yeah. I am longer. Um, just went and got fitted for a shaft yesterday, picked up some yardage there. You know, like the technology, I feel like the, you know, the manufacturing firms are playing chess and I feel like the governing bodies are playing checkers. Um, they're, they're just too good. There's too much money involved and they're just too good and they've figured it out. I think our, I'm hoping that the U.S. Masters, my goal, I'd love to see them turn around and say, hey, you want to play in our tournament and wear the green jacket when you win? Here's your options. Here's what you can use because I, I'm, I'm hoping they're frustrated with having to keep building new tees yeah. and change their golf course and change their history. Mm. Uh, all of our history. It belongs not just yeah. to Augusta National. It belongs to all of us who've invested in that, this game more than – That's right. And, you know, I unfortunately um, because, you know, if you get a young man on the phone, a young touring pro, he's going to say, oh, but, you know, this is – the skill level's still high. It's so hard to hit the ball straight and do it this way. And I, I would my discussion is always, well, you know what's harder is doing it with when Nicholas did it with or Greg Norman did it with really old crappy equipment. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, go pick that stuff up crappy. and try and hit it. <laughs> you know, I've got a I've got a driver out the back here that looks like you know it's <laughs> it looks and, and the golf balls I've got some from 1965 here that look like squash balls. You can count the divots with your finger. I mean the dimples with your finger for crying out loud. Like yeah. it's just yeah. it's nuts. You know, there's like you could fit half a nail between the spaces between the, the bloody the <laughs> dimples. So. Um, now sports evolve and I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder when Bryson DeChambeau becomes the norm, mm-hmm. what happens then, right? Right. Because we used to think, we used to think John Daly in the late nineties was a phenom mm-hmm. when he was the first guy over 300 yards to average or we used to think then along came, um, Hank Keeney drove it out relentlessly long you know, 320 yards. But Hank hit it off the, off the map a little bit sometimes, and John did too. Mm-hmm. Well, now we've got someone hitting it 350 and pretty damn straight. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if it makes it better. People, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a massive fan of it. Not, not, not from the player's standpoint, from the governing body's standpoint. Yeah. I wish they would do their job and do a better job. It was only two years ago, if you recall, Greg, that we were worried that Cameron Champ would become the norm. <laughs> Cameron That's Champ's right. now being out hit. <laughs> yeah, and this is the thing. And some of these guys, like I play with Cameron, I play with Tony Finau, some of these guys I think in order to hit it straight are actually holding back. They have more in the tank. Right now, you know, Bryson is not leaving anything in the tank. He's just saying, I'm just going to smash it. Uh, and that's working for him. He actually said he hits it straighter when he hits it harder. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe I read that. Um, and some of those guys are holding back, but 300 now is honest to God, it's average. It is average. Like you are, that's just average. It's statistically um, average, Greg. I ran the numbers yeah, last year. So, and, and was- you guys know that. And Rod, so, um, yeah, my, my question is hey, this is a great story right now, and that's wonderful. But what happens when there's 100 people doing it? Uh, and not just here, all around the world. What happens when every, you know, and, and then your outlier has to hit at 370? Mm hmm. 
Well, Where do we go there? Where do we, how do we build golf courses to to do that? Well, is it um, responsible? There's other things coming into play, isn't there? The, the rest of the world's mm. not just going to let golf keep expanding its courses so that 150 blokes can make millions of dollars. That's just not going to happen. People say, hang on a minute. Right. It's land. It's valuable. It's final. You can't keep having it. So there's bigger discussions beyond just golf. Um, yeah, but within golf, Greg, what's the ultimate solution to you? I've... A couple of years ago, came down. I, I I think it's time to separate the equipment rules for pros and amateurs. And I know that it's an unpalatable option for lots of people in golf who've grown up with one of the great tenets of golf being that we play the same game, all of us, professional, amateur, yeah. you know, beginner. To me, I feel like we play a different equipment game anyway. The equipment you get access yeah. to, and what, you aren't you aren't playing their game. No, and <laughs> so. we're not playing their game. And I wonder whether that it seems the simplest solution. To me, I think that's um, you know if I had if I was running it um, and yeah that would be what I would turn to. Um, unfortunately, I would have ripped that band aid off a few years ago. Um, I probably would have liked to have put a stop to this, um, you know, fifteen years ago. And you no, know, I remember when the professional golf ball came out, we were all ooing and ahhing over that one yeah. uh, before Pro B ones came out. Um, not to you know, tightly play every other company, they all do it. So, um, yeah, it's – I think you have to – you can't possibly I, – I, I don't want amateurs to have to – they're enjoying the game, great. I'm glad it's easy for you. I, I, that's great. You play amateur-level golf, make it as easy as you want. I don't care if you cut the hole twice as big for an amateur and get them out there enjoying the game. That's wonderful. Um, but for us as pros, it should be, it should be more challenging. Yeah. I shouldn't be – as long as I've ever been in my career at 47 years old with an arthritic spine, that's ridiculous, right? And you've got other players that are, are longer on the Champions Tour than they were on the PGA Tour by 30 yards. Yeah. Like, that's nuts. Mm. So I, I think you'd have to bifurcate. You'd have to separate the two. Um, and, if you, look, America's the king of marketing. You can market that. There's so plenty too. of people with egos who want to. Who, yeah, yeah, I want to try the pro ball That's today, right. man. They're really charge people for it. Going to do that anyway. Charge you know? 150 a dozen. You'll sell enough dozens to cover whatever yes, you want. There, there'll be an option there if you want to do it. So I'd like to see. Personally, I'd like to see double edge. I, I want to see the driver size go down from 460 or 440, whatever it is, down to 320 max, maybe even 300. Um, and then I want to see the golf ball changed. I think that'd be great. Um, I'd like to see people have to hit into a 440-yard hole that used to be a long par four, have to hit a seven iron or a, a, you know something in there and drive it three. It'd be challenging to drive it yeah. 300 straight, yeah. not just a given. A 400-meter hole. Here I am off my 10, 12 handicap, and you're saying maybe hit seven iron in there to make it a long hole. And I'm thinking 400 meters. I'm whacking two woods up there, and I'm still going to have some yeah. kind of an I mean, iron I mean, left. I mean, this guy's a flicking lobwich in there. Yeah. You know, they're driving at 3.30 and they're, they're left with 100. Is it a discussion? Yeah, so is it a discussion? What's that, mate? Is it a discussion in your circles? Do you pros talk about this or is it only us of a certain era? Because well, what happens is – I started – yeah, no, I started to yell at different people. Yeah. <laughs> um, just because I've I've reached an age in my life where I just don't care as much anymore about uh, stepping on, you know, speaking out about some things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, just, I just don't like – the writing on the wall, and so people seem to be thinking that this is—it's just an aberration right now. No. But it's been going on for a while. You know, it's not really an aberration. I mean, we, you know, the guys are crushing it. Yeah. 
Um, but they're crushing it because the physics of the way everything's designed allows them to do that. And their I mean, athleticism. I mean, we can't deny, Greg, we know guys work out more and are fitter, and nobody says that that's not having an impact. The point is not how it's happened, but what's the impact of that impact is really what we need to think about. That- yeah, well, right. I'm not a better athlete than I was 20 years ago, <laughs> and I'm mate, longer. You look pretty fit, eh? Hey? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I, I would say um, – Length, length and power used to be an asset, mm-hmm. right? Now it's a necessity. Uh-huh. Now it's one of your, it has to be one of your skill sets, right? It has to be first. So if you are a Corey Pavin coming out of college, you aren't you you don't have what you used to have uh-huh. the same opportunity to be successful. You you have to go learn how to hit it long now. That style of play, which had, to me, had a lot of sexiness about it because it was relatable, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Hey, I hit it like that guy. I hit it as far as that guy. Um, but shaping the ball, moving it up and down and around, and you played with him. He was an artist, right? And he's one example. He's a friend of mine, so that's the reason why it popped into my head. But that that doesn't exist now and won't exist. Um, and I think, I think there's a level of that's a shame because any sport that becomes one-dimensional mm-hmm. becomes less interesting to watch to me. That's my opinion, but that's, you know, I've seen it happen a little bit in tennis mm-hmm. where, you know, the, the late newts of the world or the people who used to run to the net, that doesn't happen now. You're a big six-foot-four guy and you smash it, all right? So that be to me, that's less interesting. But some people love it, right? But I think the more you just keep shoving power down everyone's throats, eventually that's going to have a point where we're all going to go, eh, yeah, they, they all hit it long and wedge it on the green. Yeah. There's enough bash sports for mine. There's nothing wrong with bash as an entertainment, but there's already enough bash sports. Golf's always right. been a multi-dimensional, multi-skill set. The six-inch putt, the 300-yard drive count for the same. So if we lose right. that, and you're right, and it has shifted the way the game is played. I'm about to let you go because you've obviously yeah. – <laughs> you've got some things to do there. Uh, last yeah. thing, you, you mentioned it there. You said you've got an arthritic spine. I think you've got one leg shorter than the other. Everything about you suggests that you shouldn't be a sports person for a living in many ways, and yet this is what you've been doing. Quite an accomplishment, my friend. What is the state of the body, and what's the future hold for Greg Chalmers? Oh, I'm still good. Be added I feel good. I actually feel really good. I'm on some good drugs and doing exercise and stuff, so um, I'm, I'm actually healthier than I've ever been. I'm on um, found some really good anti-inflammatories the doctor gave me, and they've worked. So arthritis is at bay. Um, I am. I've got five starts left on a medical, and then uh, I'm probably going to play three before the end of this season, and then two in the fall if I don't fire up to play really well in these three. And off we go. You know, go play some play some more golf. So. And life uh, in America now, Greg. That'll be you'll be in Ameri- you'll be in America forever now, or are you one who might consider coming uh, back to Australia? Yeah, as as my kids, are, you know, my boys are going to go to college over here. Fingers crossed. Um, yeah, we're fully entrenched here at the moment. Um, I don't know. I'd never sort of say, "I oh, will never do this. I'll never do that." No. Who knows? We'd love to. We'd love to be able to have a holiday home in Australia and come back and and just spend a few months there as we age, but. We'll see how that evolves. I have to fire up and play well for the damn thing. Where would you have it, Greg? You've ba- you've come out of Perth. You've come out of the central coast of New South Wales. I think you did some time in Victoria. Uh, Where would you put no, that? I lived in here? Sydney for a while. I lived in Mossman in Sydney for a little while. I, I don't mind somewhere anywhere around near water. I'm happy. Okay. Uh, doesn't have to be on it, just near it, and uh, that'd be great. Got some family living in Newcastle up Maitland Way, so nice. my parents live up there. My sister, so 
wouldn't be too far from them if I lived around Sydney way. So I think, you know, family-wise, we love it there. Um, to be honest with you, I, I love most parts of Australia. I can find a pretty easy spot, but uh, I think the I think my boss will have a, you know, my wife will have a say in that. So probably if we could do that, that'd be great. Well, but, uh, We'll see how we go. If you want something near water in Sydney, my friend, you need another couple of good years on the PGA yes, Tour because uh, <laughs> that doesn't come cheap. I'm, I'm leaving you to go practice putting right now. Fantastic, <laughs> mate. I really appreciate you taking the time. It'll be great to keep Best of luck for the rest of this year. We'll keep an eye on you. And hopefully, we'll see you back here for the Australian Open. And Thanks, Rod. Right. Appreciate it, mate. Take care, mate. It is almost impossible to find anyone in golf with a bad word to say about Greg Chalmers, and I hope that that interview gave you a peek into why that might be the case. A genuinely nice person with a fantastic perspective, and by the sound of it, plenty still left to do on the course. Well, that's it for episode 25 of the show, but make sure to come back next time when we chat with one of Australia's most popular players turned administrator, ALPG chief, Karen Lund.